So I go away for a couple of weeks and all of the boosts break. What happened? It was it was the Bitcoin dad's fault. I hadn't been monitoring our show nodes inbound liquidity and we had saturated it all because of our awesome community's good boosting habits. But I put out a shout out on the last episode to ask if anyone had any spare capacity to add inbound. And we got over 15 million sats of inbound liquidity. Oh, that's great. This is the tricky thing about running your own lightning setup is there are these channels and these channels are essentially agreements between two Bitcoin holders and you put up liquidity to make a certain amount passable through this channel. And eventually all of that money ends up on one side of the channel and you have to do what they call a rebalance or have to bring in more channels. I don't know. Did you try any of the rebalancing tools out there? There's a Telegram channel called... I want to say rings of fire. Someone opens a channel to you and you open a channel to another person and it creates like a ring in the network so that the channels might rebalance more automatically. But I screwed up the verification in that channel and I got banned for a day. I put the shout out to (laughs) our community. And I want to thank some of our listeners who provided inbound. So Craftnix sent us some inbound. And then we also have a channel from Open Hoofed. Thank you. A numeric number so this channel doesn't have a alias ppp sent us an open channel and also oro crypto banco sent us an open channel so thanks everyone for the inbound liquidity we now have 17 million sats of max receive so you can boost to your heart's content boost away indeed how great is that that's such a neat way that the audience can support Uh, you know, independent content, but also think about it, any vendor, maybe it's a free software project, maybe it's totally something unrelated to what we're doing. Maybe it's like a, you know, something like to do with a Bitcoin wallet or something like that. But it's, it's a really, it's a really cool system, because it doesn't require these big contracts with these middlemen that are going to take 3% or 5% indefinitely of that transaction. It is just using something we can all just I guess, peer to? I don't really know. It's like a, it's like something we can build ourselves. It feels very organic in a way. We are creating our own financial network. Yeah. The revolution will not be televised. It will be boostified. It'll be peer-to-peer, too. <laughs> it will be peer-to-peer. <laughs> right. Speaking of peer-to-peer, that's not really a good segue. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Wednesday, January... January. Oh, my God. I don't even know time. You wish. You wish. <laughs> Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin dad, and I'm here, as always, with... Me. I'm Chris. Chris. I'm in Bozeman, too. I'm remote Chris. It's, remote it's Chris. distant, distant Chris. Yeah, we usually get to do this show together in person. Yeah, you sound a little gruffer because you're wearing a cowboy hat and chewing tobacco, right? Right, and I got the COVID. So. Oh, you got COVID. <laughs> I don't know. I, I suspect I actually didn't test it uh, because I had things to do. First, I got real sick right in the middle of like a very busy period at work. And then I had to hit the road for a family road trip that's been locked in since December. And I got to take it now because otherwise I got to I got to pay the new inflated price. So it's either take take my reservation that I locked in at 2021 prices or delay it because I'm sick. But then I have to pay 2022's prices, which was several hundred dollars more. So I just I, I went for it. Ouch. Ouch. Well, I can tell you're enjoying yourself because you're twirling a lasso in the background. That's true. It's very fancy. It's studded. I got it with studs. I went. I, I, I splurged. I treat myself. As you should. Now, today's episode, we are going to talk about economics, our favorite. Do you think Lynn qualifies as a co-host at this point? Because we bring her up almost every episode. Definitely at least friend of the pod. 
Okay. So friend of the pod, Lynn Alden, has her June newsletter out, and that will be fascinating. It's all about demand destruction. Sam Bankman Freud. Freud? Freed? I like Freud. I like Freud. I think we should call him Sam Bankman Fred, though, just to get it, just to be Sam, fun. Oh, Sam Bankman Fed, because he wants to be like a, <laughs> a reserve bank of the crypto eco world. Sam, Sam Banking Fed. Yep, that sounds right. He's just called SBF on Twitter. He's the founder of FTX, and he basically wants to be an altcoin central bank for reasons that will become apparent. For tokenomics, we have a funny story about Solend, a Solana-based lending protocol that also has the fun feature of stealing user funds whenever it's convenient. <laughs> it's a funny story there. You know, when you mix lending, even more centralization, and Solana together, it's going to be a wild story. That is like centralization on centralization with a thin layer of decentralized and name only. Love it. Then we have a big privacy section. There's an article that I think I've left in show notes in the past, but we didn't talk about, which is about DuckDuckGo. That's something that I'm a little concerned about. The former lead dev of the Wasabi 2.0 wallet has released a spicy Twitter thread. And China, surprise, surprise, is weaponizing health screening codes. So more on that. And then after the break, we have Bitcoin education, where there are some fun videos we're going to share. And then we have a bunch of feedback. And some boosts. Don't forget those boosts. I guess those are technically feedback, right? Those are feedback. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Right, yes. I meant to say feedback and boosts. I think we should probably start with Lynn, though. Chris, you had an interesting takeaway from this Lynn article. Do you want to start with that? Sure. I mean, really, you and I, before the show started, we were thinking, we've got to talk about this June 2022 newsletter that Lynn put out. It's called Demand Destruction. And the problem is that this could have been a book. It is massive. And we were trying to think of how to break it down in a way that has a few points that you guys really need to know. And Lynn has been building this position that she really sees the kind of economic situation that the U.S. is approaching is more akin to something that happened in the 1940s and uh, maybe even a whole period of time between the 1930s and the 1940s. And it's a really great piece. Because a lot of people seeing inflation today, they immediately jump to the 1970s, which was the last big inflationary episode in U.S. history. And they say, hey, look, we're entering the 1970s. And what Lynn says is that not really. The 1970s actually had relatively low debt to GDP and I think relatively low stock market valuations. And so the financial and macroeconomic setup is much more similar to the 1940s because in the 1940s, the U.S. was involved in a world war. There was massive government spending, massive fiscal deficits, and the Treasury and the Federal Reserve worked together to keep interest rates very low, even as the government ran massive deficits. And that's actually much more similar to the current period. In fact, if you look at the chart, it looks exactly the same, basically. Yeah. So she's got a really good case, and she backs it up with the data and the charts. And then she explains, though, that things are not going to be quite as smooth for us. Not that it was really easy back then, but they're not going to be as smooth this time around for three really major reasons that are different than the situation was Number one, the U.S. back then was an up-and-coming power. They were huge. They were growing. They were getting more and more share of the global GDP all the time. We're in the exact opposite position today. That's reason number one. Reason number two is, in fact, Lynn makes the case that we're really kind of more in the position that the United Kingdom was back in the 30s and the 40s. Big contrast item number one. On the United Kingdom point, 
in the 1930s and 40s, the United Kingdom was a global empire that the sun was setting on. And so they had the British pound as the world reserve currency, but their economy was no longer large enough to support it. And actually, part of the 1929 crash, part of the, the setup to the Roaring Twenties, was the Bank of England, and I think the early 1920s, they needed to raise interest rates to prevent gold from flowing out of England into the United States. And they didn't want to do that because they wanted to protect their reputation. And as a result, the Federal Reserve kind of did England a solid, quote unquote, by not raising interest rates in the United States. And by keeping English interest rates low and U.S. interest rates low, there was no incentive for gold to move from England to the United States. But that had this side effect of creating a massive stock bubble in the United States, which ended in the 1929 recession. And now the U.S. is kind of in a similar situation because the dollar is the world reserve currency, but the U.S. economy as a fraction of the world is just reducing over time. And we're kind of at the point where the U.S. economy doesn't really support the world's requirement for dollars. And this creates instability, and it kind of suggests that we're on the precipice of a monetary regime change. Great point. That is a lot of good context. So do pause me at any point through this, because uh, that's the first big difference and where things are shifting for the U.S. Now, the second big difference relates to the productivity and the fiscal spending output and what the results were. So put another way, when you look at what the government invested and spent a lot of money on, it was building industrial manufacturing facilities. It was sourcing commodities, hiring soldiers. And then when those soldiers came back, sending them to universities on the government's dime, yes, which did add inflationary pressures, but long term was actually better off, at least according to Lynn, because what she writes here is while this was inflationary at first, she says, it at least came with a lot of productivity growth attached to it, which then led to a good type of disinflation. That all happened in the decades that followed. New technologies and a ton of new industrial capacity was added, as well as more education in the population. These were positive outcomes, which was otherwise an utterly terrible decade for most people. So they invested in those things during that decade. But in contrast today, she writes that most of the stimulus during the 2020 and 2021 went to keeping consumers and businesses solvent, despite the reduction in productivity that came with the pandemic and lockdowns. So we were really just this time around, we, we printed all that money and we spent it on just keeping the lights on. Yeah, this is an interesting point. And it actually echoes with some of Brian Solston, our Washington state candidate for U.S. Senate, has been talking about, because his platform is sort of a Bitcoin and STEM science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and manufacturing platform. And the point that I think he gets at is that there's a really bad incentive in our current monetary system whereby it drives short-term thinking at all levels of society, including government planning. You know, long-term planning has become short-term planning. And as a result, these plans for stimulus and for bailouts, they're just payouts, really. It's not like there's a large investment in infrastructure that'll pay off 10 or 15 years down the pipe because politics has become short-term, lobbying has become short-term, and Brian and other people conclude that this is actually driven largely by the incentives of an inflationary fiat monetary system. In our state, in Washington specifically, there was a, a massive scandal with a lot of the Paycheck Protection Program being scammed. The money was just completely scammed out of the account. Millions of dollars went to scammers. And when you zoom out 
and look at it across the entire country, you realize that there's very little accountability these days. The same thing with the $51 billion we're now in total have been sent to Ukraine. When one senator tried to add accountability to the latest $44 billion spending package, he was criticized. Uh, he was considered practically a traitor for suggesting that we should have any accountability of how the money is spent. When you pair it with these historic levels of money that are being spent now, when we're talking about packages that are routinely a trillion dollars or a couple of trillion dollars, and we're not attaching really much accountability to that, we're not really measuring the results or the output when we're spending that kind of money, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. And you can really see Lynn's point. We're just, we're, we're taking on so much debt for short-term spending. Yes. There's not a long-term plan here. That's exactly, and it seems like it's just, it's it, it's got to be in part the election cycle and, and trying to win an election all the time. But I think the other thing that drives that, and I'd be curious to know what you think, this feels like a little trick that the politicians can get away with. Because the system is so complicated and the impacts are so long-term, they're not immediate ramifications, and they can be blamed on the next guy and the next guy, that they just end up inevitably going this route. And when they're the reserve currency, they get to go this route in spades. They get to print money like crazy. They get to finance things like crazy. There doesn't have to be accountability. They get to be the politician that promises everything. Yeah, I think that's uh, an easy way to do politics is to shoot the money cannon at your constituents. That's a great way to win elections. Unfortunately, long term, it harms quality of life. And I think we can see that in the United States because I know we have listeners around the world. You know, maybe this would be eye opening, but the United States is really wild because it's kind of like the world's wealthiest country by GDP per capita. But Actually, sorry, it's not. Norway is. But it's very high GDP per capita. But what's wild about it is that the distribution is really skewed. So the U.S. has you know, a huge number of rich people, but this is less than 1% of the population. And then 50% of the population is essentially very poor. It almost has the wealth distribution of a banana republic, but it's still so wealthy that even the poor and working and middle class can sort of have some elements of a high quality of life, but with huge amounts of uncertainty. Because in the United States, basic services like education and healthcare can be incredibly expensive. And so, you know, a lot of people have like pretty good lives, but then, you know, you hurt yourself and now you're on this new track to homelessness and destitution. So it's a very weird and kind of brutal economic construction of society. And I think that a lot of people around the world are surprised by that when they learn more about the United States because they kind of think like, but the U.S., it's held up as this ideal in so many ways. And then the reality is much more complicated and frankly, quite weird, in my opinion. And that really is the third difference that Lynn hones in on is those demographics and also just the age differences. Uh, she writes that the U.S. had a much younger demographics in the 1940s, and that gave them a lot of runway. There could be some austerity in the short term, and those people were around for a productivity boom in the long term. But today, that demographics pyramid is very, very, very different. It's very top-heavy. It means that there is deficits to support the senior citizens' retirements and health care promises, and they are large. We didn't have that back then. And in fact, she says, really, when you just when you zoom out in total— the whole massive debt-to-GDP ratio that the U.S. has is unlike anything, really. We're really kind of adding all of these things up. And maybe maybe if we were dealing with just one of these issues at a time, the three that she outlines here, maybe it, we would be looking at a lighter couple of years coming up, maybe in the next decade. But because we're dealing with all of this at once, it's like it feels like several bills are coming due at once. Things that the cans that have been kicked are all coming to front at once. It's all kind of hitting at the same time. I, I'm trying to find the right analogy there, but do you follow what I'm saying, even if I don't nail the right analogy? Yeah, yeah, 100%. There's so much to dig into here. 
you know, one interesting thing about the demographics of the United States is that the U.S. has actually managed to fight off the bad demographics of wealthy countries for longer than European countries and Japan because the U.S. traditionally has had more immigration. And now our previous president was super anti-immigration, almost clownishly anti-immigration. And frankly, that sort of anti-immigration policy is an incredible own goal. It's like shooting yourself in the foot because immigrants to the United States are almost wholly young and they, they basically pay into all of the social assistance programs and capitalize them and they don't take anything out. It's basically a free ride. You know, you get a lot of Americans who are going to need social assistance when they re retire and they're anti-immigration. And it's like, I'm sorry, but this immigration is what's going to pay for your retirement. It's very confusing to me how people think about that. I think it's quite against their own interest. Yeah. In addition to these three phenomenon in the U.S. that are contributing to a harsher recession and probably a prolonged period of economic turmoil, there are also some macroeconomic factors that are also happening at the same time. And what Lynn points to is that in the 1930s, there were elements of deflation in the world. There was expanding productivity. And so even though there was a devaluation of the US dollar and other currencies in the 1930s, Bitcoiners are very familiar with the Roosevelt executive order. What was it called? 1601 or something? I think that's right. Yeah, it was this executive order where President Roosevelt actually confiscated all the private gold reserves in the United States, so made owning gold illegal, paid everyone for their gold at the old price, and then devalued the dollar immediately. So confiscating the gold was a way to make sure that people couldn't escape from the dollar devaluation. And this was a way to pay for government spending and create stimulus. But it wasn't particularly inflationary in the 1930s because the Great Depression was such a massive destruction of demand that that was hugely deflationary. And then these devaluations were inflationary and they worked together to sort of create neutral inflation. But the thing is, after that deflationary decade of the 1930s, the 1940s were highly inflationary. There was a massive inflationary devaluation because in the 1940s with all of the world war, there was actually a material shortage of stuff, not enough energy, not enough metals, not enough food. And actually, this is the same setup that we're in, because we had an incredibly deflationary 20 years, ever since 2000, really. The US government and, and world governments created a lot of money, issued a lot of debt, and it wasn't particularly inflationary because the global macroeconomic backdrop was deflationary. And this is mainly because of China. China entered into the WTO and huge amounts of dirty manufacturing left the first world and went to China. And I saw it firsthand because I was there. I think it's hard for people who haven't seen the industrial cities of China to imagine the scope and the scale of production happening there. You know, you just had millions of people working in factories and willing to do hard, dangerous factory work because they came from the countryside. They came from farms where that was a step up. Doing hard work in a building and having lunch breaks, that was better than subsistence farming in the countryside. But now that's over because the next generation in China, the children of the first generation of factory workers, they don't accept these working conditions anymore. They've kind of become urbanized. And as a result, China now has a labor shortage. So this deflationary backdrop 
is completely reversing and becoming inflationary. And we've had a decade of inflationary policies that haven't really resulted in inflation. And now they're hitting the wall of a inflationary world. And we're probably going to see persistent inflation, I believe. And I think Lynn agrees. Yeah, then she makes the point that the Federal Reserve that is going to try and leverage the tools they have available is going to be really limited. Now, they have this dual mandate. They're supposed to maximize long-term employment and maintain price stability. She argues, really, they have a third mandate-like responsibility, and that's to maintain financial stability. But here's the thing. They can't really make more oil. They can't fix the energy supply. They can't solve the supply chain. They, They don't lay pipelines. They don't create fertilizer. They don't build ships. They can't change any of that. What they have the knobs to tweak are really things like the rate and the knock-on effects of their actions that affect employment. And she looks at where the Federal Reserve is going, and it's clear that the Central Bank of the United States has a employment-hostile view right now. They want to create unemployment. Imagine that. Imagine that you work at a job, and the bank, the, the central bank of your country, wants to create unemployment. That's really, really stressful. She writes, The U.S. Federal Reserve is projecting an unemployment level of 4.1% a year and a half from now, which is higher than the current rate of 3.6%. And their policy decisions are aiming towards that direction. They only have a couple of knobs to kind of create demand destruction, to reduce demand. They only have a few knobs they can turn. And policies that create unemployment is basically one of two that they have. This newsletter ties together several of Lynn's previous pieces into a cohesive argument about the high inflation, higher unemployment future that the United States faces. But this is actually applicable to everyone in the world because U.S. policy echoes through global economies via the dollar as the transmission medium. Sure. I recommend giving it a read if you want to have a better grasp of the economic outlook, and you'll certainly learn something. Now, I actually have another economic piece I just wanted to mention, The Economist magazine. So I subscribe because it's like reading the neoliberal elites' plans, and they just put them out there in the open. And there was an interesting article in there this week about El Salvador. I found myself agreeing with about maybe 40 to 60% of the article. And they were basically just saying that El Salvador has a rough time of it. It was always in a difficult position because there are very few productive industries in El Salvador, and the remittances are such a huge part of their economy. And then they go ahead and say that actually the um, the Bitcoin integration hasn't been going so well and people aren't using a lot of remittances on that. And I don't know if uh, that's fair because, you know, essentially they don't really talk about the high fees of alternative remittance paths. So even small amounts of remittance via Bitcoin, you know, this is 20 to 40% cheaper than other approaches. They also talk about how the Bitcoin bill may have affected the IMF's willingness to help El Salvador with their next debt rollover. That was sort of interesting because they kind of failed to identify that actually the IMF is, in a sense, punishing El Salvador for attempting a different monetary solution to their problem. And of course, there really isn't any mention of the fact that El Salvador is already a dollarized economy and so doesn't really have an independent monetary policy. The rest of the article focuses mostly on the Bukele regime. And I think that the criticisms there are probably warranted and generally borne out by reporting 
from El Salvadorian journalists who have been critical of the regime and its relationship with the criminal gangs that are very prevalent in El Salvador. Um, from a Bitcoin perspective, I just wanted to share this because I honestly see the tone of The Economist not getting pro-Bitcoin, but certainly taking it seriously now. Yeah, I see less bad takes, less obviously terrible research. And that's interesting. That's a shift. I think there's definitely a shift in narrative because even though right now the countries using Bitcoin like El Salvador and now the Central African Republic are two of the smallest, poorest countries in the world, it's becoming a serious contender. And in the Bank of International Settlements communications, it's clear that their policy is focused in many ways on countering Bitcoin, which is wild. I mean, Bitcoin is a tiny phenomenon by market cap. It's smaller than Apple, yet it seems to be driving resistance from the largest institutions in the world. I would say we're winning. Isn't it so funny how that, that classic open source meme of, you know, first they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win, how it just seems to be so true over and over again with so many different platforms. Yeah, this wasn't bad. The Economist is doing that thing that a lot of traditional journalism does that drives me crazy, where they zoom in on a down market point in time to make a case, for a premise for an article, and they couldn't have written this article when Bitcoin was at 69,000, right? They can only write this article when Bitcoin's at 20,000. Uh, and they write in here like, quote, Bitcoin, which has lost 70% of its value since November, is far too volatile to be a good store of value. Well, that's just like your opinion, man. <laughs> That's an opinion, <laughs> dude. And they just write it in there like it's fact. And it's part of the premise of the article. And I completely disagree with that statement. So I feel like there's those elements of it that still bother me. But the overall thing that I've always worried about with El Salvador is there's a there's a real common there's a common mistake when we're really enthusiastic about a new technology and we really, really, really want this one particular use case to play out. And so People who are usually early investors or, or early people in that space, they'll, they'll make a push. And the truth is we haven't learned everything yet, and we have to kind of screw it up. And we watched this happen in Munich with Linux over a decade ago, and it was just a total, total mess. This was when Munich decided to kick out Microsoft and use Linux for their local government. Yeah. IT infrastructure. And the biggest thing that they messed up is they tried to implement their own Linux. I think that's number one. But number two is there really wasn't the education story, right? You have to train the merchants. You have to train people. You have to incentivize it. And you have to roll that out over a period of time. And you have to do it kind of layered. You don't just one day everybody's using Bitcoin now. And like this article points out, and I think this is really the most damning thing about the situation in El Salvador is they say only a fifth of businesses follow the requirement to accept Bitcoin. And that's despite the central bank's promise to exchange cryptocurrency for dollars immediately if the business wants. Only a fifth? I mean, it's like 20% is yeah, a lot. Okay. But still, it's not it's not the 100% that it was promised to be. And I think that's a fair point. Some, some businesses have just said, screw it, I'm not going to do it. And then the customers who do tend to use it tend to be American tourists, right? So there's that. I mean, I've seen some documentaries that clearly show El Salvadorians are benefiting from using Bitcoin as a store of savings. Um, I think the most compelling story I heard was an individual individual who used to twice a month get on a bus and spend four hours going back and forth to go pay bills in person. And now with Bitcoin, they actually have a way to pay those bills from home on their little Android device. And not only that, but they went from never having a penny to their name. They spent everything that came in because they just literally had a wad of cash and coins. That was their bank account was a wad of cash in their drawer. And they wouldn't have $20 to their name at the end of the month. And now this guy 
has over $700 in savings in Bitcoin. And it's completely changed his time preference and the way he looks at life. And it it, it was like you, you saw an individual completely gain control over their monetary future. You saw what it means to become a sovereign individual when it comes to your finances. Like you could just see it in this one person. So I have seen success stories out there, but I think it was not rolled out in a way that provided people the education as to why. And then in doing so, they didn't gain the like a big population like support. They didn't get a lot of people on board. And so Bekele's counterparty, who I can't remember, I don't remember their name, but the, the party that, that would love to see him out of office is politicizing Bitcoin and creating a political issue out of Bitcoin just to hurt him. And that, I think, is sort of a worst case scenario. Yeah, and that was going to happen because I've looked a little bit into Bekele and, you know, he's not the sort of politician I would support because he actually started out as a left wing politician and then he was kicked out of that party, actually, because there was an allegation that he choked another politician in his party he like physically attacked her and he then comes back as a and look i is that true or not i'm not sure it it seemed legitimate he comes back as a populist so okay he kind of seems like someone who doesn't really have strong political views yet he is running the government that's the profile of someone who's more interested in power than in policy and that's a problem and you see people like that latch on to bitcoin we've had a lot of people show up and try to use bitcoin to amplify their platform. One great example is Richard Hart, the hex scammer. My opinion, Richard, don't sue me. Richard actually videoed some public confrontations he had with fake Toshi, Craig Wright, who claims to be Satoshi, but he's not. And again, that's my opinion, Craig. Richard Hart fought another scammer to establish his Bitcoin credentials and then use those credentials to start a Ponzi scam. So, you know, Bitcoin is a tool. People can use it however they want. And that means that grifters and authoritarians can use it too. Also known as politicians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, there's a meta point you're making in there that we should just kind of, I think, pull out. And that is, you are going to, no doubt in my mind, see more and more politicians in the West use Bitcoin as a political tool. Be skeptical, even if they're your party. Be very skeptical of that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is like a new element some people are going to build power stations out of it. Some people are going to build weapons. Yeah. Powerful technologies work that way. We have to think carefully about everyone's motivation. Well, nothing says altcoins are a sound investment like a private company stepping up and saying we're going to bail them out in perpetuity. That, to me, really suggests sound tokenomics, of course. Why would he want to do this? So the background here is that FTX, which is one of the largest crypto exchanges, uh, with clearly Sam at the front, has bailed out BlockFi, a crypto lender, with a $250 million revolving credit line. And Sam has said on Twitter that it's kind of their responsibility to help bail out these different projects and to help reduce the overall contagent damage because uh, he doesn't want the crypto recession to go any deeper than necessary. So they'll step up, play the role of the lender of last resort. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things going on here. First of all, FTX makes its money trading altcoins. Bitcoin is the ground upon which the altcoin ecosystems are built, but the money for exchanges and these other businesses are all in altcoins. So they need Bitcoin but only as it relates to allowing them to do their sort of altcoin, short-term trading, degen business model. Supporting BlockFi might be logical because if BlockFi can remain solvent and not have to market sell its Bitcoin balances or declare bankruptcy, that could contain contagion. 
in the crypto lending ecosystem. And I'm sure that more contagion basically hurts FTX, both because FTX may have exposure to the assets getting destroyed. Bear markets are really bad for exchange trading volumes, and they make money on their trading volumes. So it might make sense for them to bail out these lending platforms that are the contagion points in this bear market that might serve to shorten the bear market and uh, protect FTX's trading volumes. There is a rich irony here, though, because in an interview with Decrypt or what? Oh, no, speaking to NPR, I'm sorry. Sam said that, uh, you know, really all of this is the fault of the Federal Reserve because uh, they got in, you know, they're messing with rates and they're scaring people with money. He said, he says, literally, markets are scared. Quote, people with money are scared because of the core driver of this has been the Fed. That's a direct quote from Sam there. And so there's an irony that Sam is attributing the market panic to a centrally managed bank and then is essentially offering to become a centrally managed bank to help out with the market. It's truly like, it seems like something that a child would think of, but Sam is in his early 30s. He's much older than that. He's probably a lot smarter than I am. And I agree it's because of the knock-on effects here at FTX, but you have to acknowledge, you have to realize, and he must because Sam is a very smart individual, that long-term, the best thing for crypto as a brand and for crypto's trust with the people would be to let all of these scam crap projects with weak underpinnings and bad tokenomics to let them die off, to let the market do what it's supposed to do and let the weak die and the strong survive. And then what is left is projects that are trustworthy, that are built well, that have strong finances, that won't screw consumers. And by bailing out all of these crap projects, we're just perpetuating this cycle that's going to happen. And Sam must realize that. Because he is a smart lad with a lot of hair. I think that it's very difficult to make a billionaire understand something when his billions depend on him not understanding it. I think Sam and Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, have almost everything in common. And Sam is given a pass because Sam is a, says he's an effective altruist and he's going to donate his billions to good causes. And that's cool. At the same time, I don't think that it absolves you of the moral decisions you make as you create those billions. I view Sam as, you know, basically in the same category as someone like Richard Hart. He creates businesses that do real things. At the same time, the core to their functioning is an encouragement of degenerate zero-sum trading activities. And you can see it in, you know, whenever he talks in public, he reveals his sort of true motivations. He had an interview with Joe Weisenthal. Yeah, right. I don't listen to Joe Weisenthal any longer because he's one of these perma-noob guys whose whole shtick is never understanding anything. So yeah. can you please explain it in small words? Yeah. He does that to Sam and he's like, show Sham, how do these uh, altcoins work? And Sam's like, okay, buddy, let me describe a Ponzi scheme. And he describes this Ponzi scheme where I put money in a box and then you come along and you put money in a box and then I stick my hand in and I take money out. Yeah, that's how it works. Okay, Sam, that's a Ponzi scheme. Okay, that's just transferring money between investors. There's no actual productive investment happening there. And I think that there is a temptation to attribute very successful people with positive characteristics because in many ways, if you have a billion dollars, you are the ultimate winner of our current system of economics and society. However, when you talk to these people, you discover very selfish, unself-aware people. And if you think about that, 
that's a little worrying. It speaks to the values and fundamental problems in society, and I think that's disturbing to many people to think about. Sam, you can always come to Bitcoin. Bitcoin won't make you billions, but it's waiting for you, and it's ready to embrace you after your altcoining goes terribly wrong. Right. So it'll probably go fine for him. He'll probably continue to be fabulously wealthy and build more Ponzonomic platforms to part investors with their money and mislead them as to their odds of succeeding in a trader's market. Yep. But um, it also might not. Who knows? Maybe this loan to BlockFi is a sign of weakness, not of strength, because maybe he's very exposed to BlockFi. And uh, if it were to go insolvent, that would affect him in some way that we're not aware of. Perhaps. I think for most BlockFi customers, this was the announcement that BlockFi was struggling. I think customers had their funds on BlockFi and were not even aware that they were on the verge of a collapse. And then they found out with the announcement that they just got a revolving credit line from FTX. And, you know, Sam is perfectly happy to let you log on to FTX right now and buy and sell Solana, right? He's fine with you getting Matic on there. Go ahead. Get yourself a big bag of Matic on FTX. Sam's fine with that. Right. Just FYI, you're probably going to lose all your money holding those assets. They're highly speculative, very thinly traded markets, and the track record of digital assets other than Bitcoin is really, really poor. We talk about this almost every episode, but the big altcoins of previous cycles, no one even knows their name anymore. <laughs> like They don't just disappear. It's like they never existed. Well, and in, a, in a new kind of crap coinery in Solana land, now you can also be punished for getting too rich. So not only can you get screwed in terms of staking in your influence for not ever having enough and, <laughs> of course, getting eventually devastated when the price crashes, but you can also get punished if you have too much and you want to sell. It's just you get screwed on both ends with Solana. Oh, it's beautiful. So there is this lending protocol built on Solana called Solend, and it's run by an anonymous person called Ruder, who has a Medium blog with like 500 followers. And this is important because it kind of gives you a sense of how tiny and thinly traded these altcoin projects are. Yet there is a whale who deposited Solana into the Solend protocol to the tune of $120 million. <laughs> and now, apparently, this whale is at risk of liquidation. And they're very concerned that if this whale liquidates, it'll actually systemically affect not just the Solend lending platform, but also Solana. And so the Solend lending platform has a DAO, and they have voted to basically confiscate the whale's funds to protect the protocol. It's preposterous. The fantastic thing in there was that when they, quote unquote, voted, this DAO, quote unquote, voted to determine if they should take control of this wallet, 98 something percent of the votes came from one stakeholder. So one person had 98% of the votes. Now, this got so much crap that I do believe they then held another vote to decide to undo it. So I think they've now undone it. But their problem is, is if Solana gets into the low 20s, this whale's going to get liquidated. He's going to get margin called. And then that all has to get 
spent. And that's really what they're concerned of. And as we as we record this um, in the last couple of days, Solana has been flirting with quite the downturn. Um, it's gotten into the low 30s a couple of times in the last few days. So a $10 price drop doesn't seem that impossible anymore when you consider Solana was over $100 not that long ago. And it's sitting around low 30s now. And if it gets to low 20s, margin call time. Right. And I think this speaks to the fact that Solana is probably one of these altcoins that they show up they pretend that they're a big deal, and then they'll be gone by the next cycle. Now, this DAO confiscating user funds, this is a sign of how decentralized in name only really works. Solana is not decentralized. It breaks every four days, and the 20 or 21 or however many validating nodes they have, they all get together on a Discord channel and they turn on the network again. The Solend protocol that's built on top of that also has the same decentralized and name-only dynamics, because there's clearly a wallet that can propose votes to the DAO and then win the vote by itself. This invalidates the validity of this DAO. It doesn't provide any sort of decentralization. It's more like an unregistered corporation, and you never know who owns the shares, and you might own some shares and think you have voting rights, but actually someone else owns the majority of the shares, and so you can vote, but it'll be a token gesture because there's a secret whale that controls the whole thing. And that's a big theme in these altcoin protocols. Generally speaking, there's a big whale who's the founder, an early developer, an early investor, and they control the whole thing and you're just along for the ride. And you'll end up getting whatever they leave for you after they dump their bags. A token gesture. Uh, how perfect is that? And just a grade A example of the kind of shenanigans that doesn't go on in Bitcoin, right? This isn't even a thing in Bitcoin. And when you talk about what's the difference between the altcoins and Bitcoin, like people will talk about the technicals and they'll, and they'll talk about the, the distribution of the nodes. Or they'll, they'll talk about the growth rate or the, the hash or rate or the difficult, whatever, right? But they don't talk about this stuff because this is stuff that just doesn't even exist in Bitcoin, but it makes a big difference. This kind of rickety crap is just, it's its a bunch of Wall Street people having fun. People, I should say, LARPing is Wall Street people having fun. It doesn't make for sound money. I just want to define LARPing for our listeners in case we have someone who doesn't know the term. LARPing stands for live action role play. So it's just acting, essentially, but slightly more cringe, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a little more awkward, a little more cringe. No hate. I have friends who LARP, but let's be honest. LARPers that LARP at ninjas and actual ninjas, not the same thing. I mean, hey, I'd love to try LARPing too. Just make sure there are no cameras. I don't want that getting on the internet. <laughs> right. Fireball, fireball. <laughs> Throwing tennis balls at Chris I can right picture now. it, yeah. Deflect, deflect. Shield of deflect, shield of deflect. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings us to privacy news. We're going to need some privacy after that LARPing display. And this is an article that I read, and it just sort of concerned me. And the gist is that searches on DuckDuckGo seem to be plateauing and dropping for the first time in a couple months. And now, this might just be a blip on the radar. The, um, the data doesn't go back far enough to say if this is a real trend. But one thing that really concerns me is privacy fatigue because if you're concerned about privacy, it actually puts a huge mental burden on you because we live in a digital surveillance corporate surveillance state. And so there's so many ways to accidentally screw up your privacy every day. They're just traps laid everywhere for you. And if you begin to think about them, 
even little decisions like how you pay for your coffee. Do you use your card? Do you use cash? What do you do? These can have privacy implications and you can just run into kind of decision fatigue around this. So I just wanted to bring that up and make sure that people think about privacy, but also remember you can't let it drag you down. Privacy shouldn't be making your blood pressure go up. It's a thing. It's a dimension of human activity. Yeah. And when you feel like you're going to need some privacy or you try to default to privacy so it doesn't become a decision, but there will be times when it'll be tempting to use Google or use Google Maps or something. And uh, there's ways to organize your life so you can do that sometimes and not necessarily dox your whole identity to Google. Ooh, the Monero bros are listening right now, shaking their head. I'm actually very bullish on consumer sentiment towards privacy. And um, the reason on that is, is I'm old and I've been on the internet a long time. And I have transitioned from totally just frustrated at thinking that people could never care less about their privacy to slowly, mostly thanks to the media freaking them out about Facebook, but also thanks a bit to Edward Snowden type leaks. I have seen people turn around and I have seen a building interest in privacy as time goes on. And it seems like what happens is we have some major event and that major event just wakes up a whole new group, a whole new demo to privacy. And it just builds and builds and builds. And so I think it takes longer than I would like. And that by the time people wake up and realize, for most people to be too late, especially with the CBDCs right around the corner. But I am overall bullish on the sentiment. I think people do start to appreciate it more and more as time goes on. And I think that will bring them over to the Bitcoin space. Solid. I agree completely. I think that there will be an event when everyone who hasn't taken privacy measures will wish that they had. And it won't happen the way we think. It'll be something completely out of left field. But there are generally these events that we don't see coming, and they suddenly change people's calculus and values, in my opinion. Which brings us to privacy wallets. We've spoken about the Wasabi Bitcoin wallet, right, in the past? Yeah. Yeah. And so Wasabi is a privacy Bitcoin wallet. And I want to kind of do a both sides here because Wasabi has some very good features. First of all, Wasabi was one of the first Bitcoin privacy wallets. I think it showed up before Samurai Wallet. It's a desktop wallet, and I like that. And it does two things very well that I think are really cool. One is Wasabi can privately get your wallet balance without access to a full node. So you don't have to run your own full node to use Wasabi. It's better, but you don't have to. Because Wasabi actually gets your transactions by using something called Bloom filters. Instead of going to an Electrum server and giving your wallet's public key to that server to find all your transactions, which is simple and fast, but it gives all your privacy to that server, completely doxes you. Wasabi actually queries multiple servers, and it kind of asks for um, a bunch of different bits of data that any one server won't have like a full picture of what you're looking for, so they won't really be sure which wallet is asking them for that. Now, if Chainalysis were running tons and tons of nodes, maybe they could put it together, but it makes it a lot harder. And so it can operate as a light wallet with some better privacy assurances than an Electrum light wallet that basically doxes all your privacy to the Electrum server that it's using as a backend. So I think that's pretty cool. The other thing it does really well is coin control. Now, coin control is a feature that shows you the individual UTXOs in your wallet. And basically, if you want privacy, you kind of need to be a little anal about how you use these UTXOs, because some UTXOs might have touched a KYC service, some haven't. If you mix them together, you taint your 
un-KYC UTXOs with KYC ones. It's really complicated. So Wasabi exposed that functionality and let people handle it. Now, there were also some downsides, mainly that Wasabi offered a coin joining service, and that service doesn't seem to work very well. It actually doesn't provide the privacy that it says it does. And Wasabi claims to have solved this in their Wasabi Wallet 2.0. Now, there are two threads here. The first is from Wasabi Wallet, and they're explaining why they're releasing the Wasabi 2.0 Wallet stable version right away. And there's no pre-release, there's no alpha, beta, release candidate version. They're just dropping it out there. And they're saying that essentially they've just done such a great job that it's stable, but also they need more people to coin join for there to be a crowd to hide in by coin joining. And so they kind of just have to release it like this. Maybe Chris should should jump on. Let's see what you think. I mean, that is a tricky place, right? Because if the feature doesn't work until there's a network effect, you can't test. In fact, they argue that it would be a bad user experience without the network effect. They try in a tweet thread that you've linked in the show notes, they try to explain that, look, look, what we did internal development for two years and six months. So it's not like it was totally a 1.0, but the argument that's being made online is that there's a lot of aspects to this that haven't been fully tested yet, and you haven't really banged on it properly to put it out there in the public. And yes, you need the network effect, but there's other attack vectors here that somebody could go after, totally unrelated to the coin join stuff. There's one more problem in the Wasabi Wallet thread. The top comment is from Vlad Castilla, and he says, this was tweeted by Max. Now, I think he's talking about Max Hildebrand. And Max Hildebrand is this guy. He's kind of like a privacy libertarian guy. He's, he's always shilling Wasabi Wallet. And Max's position is, hey, I'm just a contributor to Wasabi Wallet. I'm not like the Wasabi Wallet team. So he kind of talks about the benefits of Wasabi Wallet, and he sort of distances himself from the organization that develops it. The thing is, apparently, Max is tweeting from the official Wasabi Wallet account. And I see that as problematic because my sense essentially is that Wasabi Wallet's a very small team, very small community, and they kind of try to make it seem bigger than it is. And this isn't necessarily like a scam. I mean, there's many legitimate marketing reasons to make something seem bigger than it is, but it seems a little disingenuous given how Max kind of has this opinion like, hey, I'm just a guy who independently thinks this thing is good. I'm not really involved in all the administration. It's like, I don't have a stake in this race, except it's good technology. And now, that just seems a little thin if you're tweeting from the official account. Yeah, I agree. That that kind of was a red flag to me, too. Right. And now the spice is that the lead developer of Wasabi Wallet 2.0 has left the project, and he links to this thread of the release and basically says, do not use it. It is not safe to use. Well, now that's awkward, right? Because, again, there's that network effect. The version 1 is only going to be available while there's liquidity for coin joins. I mean, this gets to a really awkward point where users either need to be able to trust the developers or at least wait a while to upgrade, perhaps. Maybe that's the middle ground, is you just hang tight for a bit and wait for 2.1, 2.5, maybe. <laughs> yeah. We could get into the criticisms of Wasabi Wallet, but then we'd have to weigh both sides and that would take ages. I think we can safely say that while there's controversy around a privacy tool, and if you have former lead developers saying it's not safe, just steer clear of it until the controversy resolves, is my two cents. Yeah, two agreed. Cents. Yep. Okay. And in our last bit of privacy news, and I'm sure this will shock and surprise you, Chris, China seems to be weaponizing health 
safety screening codes to prevent people from doing civil protests. Yeah, and specifically to prevent people from doing bank runs and what as bank lines started to form, the Chinese officials started flipping to code red and telling people that they've been exposed and that they need to isolate immediately and leave the area or they'd be in violation. And essentially, they used it to do crowd control remotely. Remote crowd control. Hmm. I wonder what else would be really useful at remotely controlling what people can and can't do from a central office. Hmm. There's a lot there. Now, a little bit of context. There is a bank in Hunan province that has prevented for the past two months depositors from accessing about $178 million of funds. Now, that's a lot of money, but in the scope of banking, that's not a lot of money. So what's going on here? Well, basically, this bank is insolvent. And this is a common pattern in China. Henan is a poorer province. It's in the interior. It's landlocked. And a lot of Henan people actually travel to coastal provinces like to Shanghai or Tianjin or Shandong or Beijing and work there and then send money home. So Henan is almost like a internal remittance state. It's very agricultural. It has some heavy industry, but it's, it's very poor. Now, Banks in these interior, poorer Chinese provinces are almost universally problematic. There's not that much profitable industry there, and so they often end up with loan portfolios full of garbage assets that are trending to zero. It was the Inner Mongolian Rural Credit Bank or Credit Union. They were the ones that actually funded the development of Ordos. Ordos is the famous Chinese ghost city, which I've been to. And it is a ghost city. It's a city in the middle of nowhere. It could house probably about a million people, but it's empty because it was built to provide speculative real estate for coal miners to buy. And then the coal mining industry collapsed overnight in the area. It's just a big empty city. And all the loans that were taken out to build that city are worth zero. And that led to the collapse of the Inner Mongolian Rural Credit Union. Now, this bank in Hunan, what's the source of their bad loans? Probably real estate, because China has been in the midst of a massive real estate bubble popping for the last two years. But they are preventing depositors from withdrawing, and they're using these health code apps to prevent them from coordinating and traveling to the bank to protest. So I think that's probably a sign of things to come in China. Indeed. And you could definitely see how a CBDC would be so helpful to kind of complement a system like this if you had some sort of app-based location system combined with a CBDC that could be disabled so you couldn't spend it at certain vendors or certain countries or certain locations or certain websites. Man, what a a real nice package that would be for the governments, not for the people, of course. Right, because instead of just turning their health codes red so they can't, like, go to the grocery store or even get onto a train, you could just turn off their wallets and then they literally wouldn't be able to buy anything. And... You know, if you keep the wallets off long enough, they might get hungry enough to agree to anything. Who knows? Or just even knowing that they're watching every single transaction is going to be sort of, it's going to impact people's behavior, just knowing that that's getting monitored. Yep, self-censorship is a real thing. And speaking of being sovereign, this episode of The Bitcoin Dad is brought to you by the self-hosted podcast. Now, you may be hearing all of those sweet background sounds we're inserting into Dad's track to live true to the logo of the show. Those tracks aren't cheap, and those are made possible by you going to selfhosted.show and checking out the self-hosted podcast by uh, me, uh, 
and my buddy Alex over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We focus on controlling your own data, playing around with your electronic toys, doing things like replacing your thermostat so that way you can control it over your own Wi-Fi and it doesn't talk to a cloud server, but you can tie it in with automations using things like Home Assist. Go search your favorite podcast app, which I'm sure is a podcasting 2.0 compatible app at newpodcastapps.com. Go search for self-hosted show or go to selfhosted.show and try out one of our episodes. And I think Chris is talking about the gentle hum of the servers running oh, yeah. in my office. Oh, yeah. Totally, totally, totally. Yeah, they are happily converting electricity into heat. So Those I, are those are not, no, no, they're not state. real. They're, they're expensive loops that we've had patched in, oh, right? right? That <laughs> right. Only made possible by that sweet ad deal by self-hosted. Yeah, I know, I know. Gosh, thank goodness we got such a generous sponsor. As many raspberry pies as you can handle was the deal. <laughs> Which brings us to Bitcoin education. We have two resources today. The first is a link to the YouTube channel of the Bolt Hackathon. The Bolt Hackathon happened recently, and these are tutorials on getting started with building on Lightning. I'll be honest, I haven't done any of them yet. I just sort of looked through and thought, man, this looks pretty approachable. So if we have any listeners who are interested in building on Lightning or learning more about programming and um, software development in general, this might be a great place to start. Bold Hackathon Tutorials link in the show notes. Our second resource is the Certified Bitcoin Professional Test. I'm going to hint a interview that we're going to release in the future. I found out about this on Jameson Lopp's blog. I'll just leave it at that. Huh. And I clicked through it. I think you have to pay $50 for this certification. And I'm not sure that it's worth anything today because... Bitcoin companies are few and far between, and most Bitcoiners in the market are kind of OG Bitcoiners anyway. So. True. Although, how fun would it be to say, I'm a certified Bitcoin professional. <laughs> I know. I'm tempted to take it. Yeah. Lop actually said that if you're a Bitcoiner who's been in the space for a while, just take it. Like, don't even bother studying. You'll probably just ace it. Interesting. They also say it's good for accountants, controllers, sales and marketing professionals, as well as teachers, professionals, entrepreneurs, IT professionals. Here's my favorite, though call center representatives. I guess maybe people are calling in with Bitcoin issues. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Well, if you really want to supercharge your call center career, this might be the professional certification for you, which brings us to feedback. Remember, you can get in touch via email, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or on Twitter at bitcoindadpod. You can also join the Jupiter Broadcasting Matrix channel using a Matrix client-like element. Links in the show notes. Now, I mentioned I got an email in our pre-show, but I'm not sure if I should reveal it because it's a pretty in-depth discussion about how to build a secure home lab network with Bitcoin services. So maybe we should just talk generally about that for a minute or two. What do you think? Hmm, interesting. So when you say like a, what do you mean home services? Kind of like an umbral, but you build it yourself sort of a setup? I think it's more like, imagine you're building an umbral, but you're also very concerned about privacy. Sure, so sure. setting up VLANs, setting up firewall rules, that sort of thing. Oh yeah, that is an interesting idea. I've thought about that too, because one of the things I would like to ultimately launch is a BTC pay server, which is a great self-hosted software that lets you set up carts and one-time donations and fundraisers and all kinds of things. You can just, the list is really goes on and on. In fact, it looks like they even have some lightning stuff they're working on. Um, but I don't really want to put that on my node that's on my LAN. And so I've been wondering how I would probably build that. And a DMZ, as we called it back in my day, would probably be a 
if it wasn't on a VPS, on a hosted server somewhere like on Linode, I would probably have an isolated network segment that I would put those kinds of services in. A VLAN, I suppose, would be... Um, I don't know. I feel like a VLAN wouldn't be enough for me personally. I would like to have it on its own network. So like my LAN, my private network with all my computers and my devices would be like a 192.168 network. And then I would have a separate network that hangs off of my router that would be like a 172.16. something. something. It's totally different IP spaces, totally different physical networks. And then I would, on the firewall, open ports into that 172.16 network. Yeah, I mean, I imagine... If I was deploying a website with a BTC pay server integration, what I might do is actually have three VPSs or containers running. So I might have a reverse proxy running in front of the website and the BTC pay server and have that basically proxy between the website and the pay server so that people who have access to the website can't necessarily access ports and services on the pay server that I don't want to expose. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think also the other thing that we'd really want to consider is maybe virtualization or containerization of some of the software services, depending on how you build things. I think that's one of the areas that Umbral at least has good principles. The security needs to be improved there, but things are isolated into containers. You could take it a step further and do VMs if you felt it was really necessary. So you can think about how to maintain that? How am I going to update that? How am I going to stay in sync with those projects, especially if I'm the one deploying that software? How am I going to manage that? And I think also thinking through some of those things and then how are you going to write it down? Because one of the lessons I've learned on the infrastructure I've built is I get so into it. I really enjoy it. And it's like my world for a couple of months. And I think I'll never forget anything about it. And then six months go by, eight months go by, and I go back to add, fix, or change something, and I can't remember half of it. <laughs> so documentation yeah. is also really important when you're, when you're doing that kind of self-hosting. I could talk about this for another 10 minutes, but I think we should move on. Now, we have several boosts from the last episode, but we also had a couple boosts that did not make it because I didn't have sufficient liquidity. And so I'm going to read them from the Fountain podcast app because some of the boosts showed up there, but they didn't show up on the node. Ooh if that's okay. Mm -hmm. This was on June 17th. We had a boost from Marcel, who was listening to Bitcoin Bill or Altcoin Shills. Love the show, but I feel like the editing has some room for improvement. Half of the last word before a cut often doesn't make it. In this episode, Chris had three takes at the start of a sentence, and the first two weren't cut out. I've noticed that in other episodes, too. My two cents and some sats to ease the criticism. Well, Marcel... Thank you for caring enough to boost in. Your Bitcoin dad is learning his podcasting craft. He is not a podcasting master like Chris. And it's good that you catch that because that motivates me to always give it an extra listen through and make sure that I haven't missed anything. I mean, I think you're doing great. I think most people would be surprised to learn that you've never edited a podcast before. Behind the scenes, the Bitcoin dad has had to come up to speed on audio equipment stuff, uh, remote audio uh, interviewing and editing. And each one of those, when you're operating at a large scale, could actually be a specialty, right? A producer would be managing all of the remote connection stuff. An editor would be handling the audio stuff. And then the host actually does like some of the content and the actual reading, right? So it's it's a big job. And so I think the fact that you've made it that far without very many criticisms is, is a testament to how much you've learned how, and how quickly you've learned it. Yeah, well, thanks for those kind words. At the same time, I really don't want the production to get in the way of people enjoying the content. So that's what we're working for and appreciate having a community that is willing to provide constructive and helpful criticism when necessary. That's a good feeling. Now, another boost that didn't make it in was from Sir Lurksalot, also on June 17th, listening to the same episode, who added, thanks for adding the chapters. Cool. Ah, yeah. chapters are nice. Yeah. 
Totally. That same episode, we had another boost that didn't make it from Crypto Coach BTC. What a discussion re-regulating Ponzi coins. I am with dad on hopes for regulations. The U.S. has one of the better legal systems out there, and there should be a legal way to stop the scams. They don't just make people lose money. They make people feel powerless and ashamed to a degree that cost people health and lives. Down with the Ponzi coins. Wow, that's heavy. Powerful, though. I mean, it does affect some people very, very, very hardly. Roughly? Strongly? I don't know. But, you know, it strongly, really sure. they get impacted. And you see the stories online, and it is very sad. And everybody always says, well, never spend more than you should. You could be okay losing. But really, people get excited. They lose track of that kind of stuff, and they make mistakes. And you learn to never invest more than you can lose by losing at least once. That's very true. So, That's the real teacher. Yeah, it's important that you are able to survive that first loss. The market may sort out scams in the end, but laws exist. And right now, these scams are being protected by a lack of enforcement. We're not clamoring for the government to solve all of our problems. We think that Bitcoin provides incentives for everybody, including government, to work better. Kospieland boosted in with uh, 3,690 sats yesterday-ish. Uh, great show. And you know what? I like the technical technical details. Technical details is a technical word to say. <laughs> the technical <laughs> details. Yeah, I do too. I like getting into the details as well. Yeah, thanks, Cass. And uh, we also had 5,000 sats from at JT listening to the same episode. Now, if you don't mind, I'll take this one, Chris. We had a boost, 555 sats from BTCD. This was our anarcho-capitalist from a previous episode. He was listening to bulls, bears, and pigs. Thanks for reading my last boost. The Harry Brown quote conflates state and government. I agree some people in government do some good things. I disagree that a state, monopoly on violence, is necessary for effective government. Many anarcho-capitalists share this view and have written extensively on the subject. Recently, a sci-fi book was written which envisions such a world. Bitcoin is prominent in the story. The name of the book is The Future by Stephen Molyneux. Now, that name Stephen Molyneux, I thought I recognized it. So I looked it up, and I have to say what I found was quite disturbing. Stephen Molyneux is a white supremacist, and he espouses a lot of very disturbing sexist and racist views. And he also has a podcast, which I won't name, that has been identified as a cult, in which he encourages people to break from their families and sort of reject their their biological family. From what I've read about Stephen Molyneux, he seems like a very corrosive and dangerous influence. And so I don't know how uh, you found this book, BDCD. You know, I hope it's a interesting. I don't think I'll be reading it, but I just wanted to caution you and other listeners that if you have encountered Stephen Molyneux, please take what he says with a big grain of salt, because I think there's a lot of very reasonable criticism of him that identifies him as a very bad actor. Hmm. Next boost comes in from listener, 122 sats. I added a 15 million sat channel for you. Let the community know if you ever need a new channel. I think it's a great idea to ask for help from the listeners because it allows for another way to give value for value. That's awesome. And he was using uh, Podverse to send that in. Good to see a few more Podverse uh, podcast clients pop on here. I think Podverse is a great podcasting 2.0 app. And that... Oh, I didn't know it... 
It had uh, podcasting 2.0. From the web interface, you can boost. You can not from the apps yet, but from they are adding it to the app soon. But the web interface, you can send boost in. And then the nice thing is it will sync your podcasts from the web to your mobile client. That's a massive channel. That's so awesome. Yeah, that's a jumbo channel. Thank you so much, listener. Our next boost comes from Fiat is Slavery from Fountain, who is listening to Bulls, Bears, and Pigs. Well done. Clearly, you are well-versed on the technical side. Hey, thanks so much. Yeah. True Grids comes in with 3,000 sats and says, I love the list of privacy proposals. Always love me some Seth for privacy, too. So good episodes, in my opinion. The only thing that could make it better was Chris. <laughs> Hope you had a good trip, Chris. And thank you, Dad. I am currently having a great... I, I, had, I missed you guys so much, though. I wanted to come back for one while I was on the road. And of course, go figure, it's been really mild temperature-wise here, except for today. It's a scorcher, and it's pointed... That burning, burning ball of fire is pointed right right at where I'm sitting in the RV. <laughs> it always happens when I record, but I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I think that suffering while recording a podcast is is part of the game. You know, it really yeah. adds a certain something. I must suffer for my art. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I, I think that's an episode. Yeah, no correction, so that means we get to wrap it up. Yeah, I know. We're apparently just doing great. No one's uh, correcting us, except on uh, my editing. Well, if they do want to send a correction and our feedback or a boost in general, they should get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. You want one that supports boosts. And I will be adding to that list in the show notes. So we'll add Podverse yep, to that. Yep, Podverse on there. I mean, they're all listed at newpodcastapps.com. Yep, Castomatic on iOS is really great. Well, thanks for listening to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here. With, with me. Me, Chris. See you next time. Fireball. Fireball. <laughs> Defy. Defy. <laughs>